Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Ronit Malka, and today I'm joined by Dr. Robert Morrison to talk about bilateral vocal fold paralysis and paresis. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Morrison. Thank you. Of note, we have a separate podcast on pediatric vocal cord immobility, so we'll be focusing mainly on adults in this discussion. Also, be sure to listen to that podcast on unilateral vocal fold paralysis in adults. So starting off, who is affected by bilateral vocal cord paralysis and paresis? Well, I, I think the important thing to understand, and, and we'll get into this a bit more when we talk about uh, mechanism, mechanisms or pathogenesis, is that we, we see this in all age groups. Uh, we see that it's in infants and children and young adults and older adults. Um, and that relates to the fact that sometimes this is traumatic, sometimes it's from surgery or other factors, things that happen throughout the course of someone's lifetime. Uh, in, in the children or in the pediatric pep, uh, population, we most often see it in infants, um, but on, on the adult side, we see it in all age distributions. The other thing I would say is that um, we see unilateral vocal cord paralysis a lot more frequently. Um, that being said, in that patient population, we do think that about a third of patients who suffer a vocal cord injury, either from surgery or, or some other trauma, um, also have bilateral vocal cord paralysis, not just unilateral. And how do those patients typically present? The, the fascinating thing about bilateral vocal fold paresis and paralysis is how heterogeneous the, the patient population is as far as how they present with symptoms. And I think the important note is that that really relates to what degree of residual uh, laryngeal function these patients have and what degree of disorganized or chaotic reinnervation they've experienced to their larynx. So patients with very little innervation to the larynx will present with vocal folds in more in the abducted position uh, where they will have a breathy voice, they may have aspiration, uh, but most often patients are presenting with symptoms of airway obstruction because the vocal folds are in the adducted or closed position. And so patients may have mild dysphonia complaints, but most often are presenting with shortness of breath and characteristically with inspiratory strider, either with exertion or, or sometimes at rest. Um, the, the clinical distinction as far as how acutely to manage these patients largely is dictated by the degree of respiratory distress they're exhibiting. So some of these patients will present to us after many years of shortness of breath um, and they have exertional dyspnea, but, but they otherwise are comfortable and can manage their activity levels to keep their dyspnea well managed. Other times we'll see these patients acutely in extremis where they're retracting, they're um, hyperacidotic, and we're debating whether we need to acutely intervene on their airway. Um, I think the other uh, important character or important thing to consider for these patients is if we do need to acutely manage their airway, that um, intubating them alone is not going to be adequate. We also have to ask ourselves what may or what comes next, because if their airway is already very um, significantly narrowed or obstructed, you add edema from intubation and, and there's a high likelihood they would be unable to successfully intub uh, extubate afterwards. So we have to ask ourselves, what else can we do to facilitate the patient being able to either extubate um, or wean off of the ventilator? Uh, the other important distinction is that this in, these injuries evolve, and we'll talk about that over the course of this hour, but um, there may be no mobility initially, and patients may recover partial mobility. You know, that's technically our definition of a vocal fold paresis, is that there's, there is weakness, but there is still some degree of residual function. And the degree of residual motion is essential in dictating how dyspneic these patients are. Um, so the patient who has no mobility of their vocal folds will typically present with much more significant airway obstruction symptoms compared to a patient who has 30% or 50% residual motion. Before we get into a discussion on differential, can we briefly review some of the anatomy relevant to our discussion on bilateral vocal cord paralysis? Yeah, absolutely. And and the neuroanatomy is essential in understanding how and why these present after, uh, these patients present after their, their injury. So if you recall, um, all of the intrinsic muscles of the larynx, except the cricothyroid muscle, are innervated by the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Um, and within uh, the larynx, the only abducting muscle is the posterior cricoritinoid muscle. 
The lateral cricorytenoid muscle is the primary adductor, but there is a significant contribution from the thyroarytenoid muscle and the interarytenoid muscle. The interarytenoid muscle, fascinatingly, is, the, uh, is a muscle that has bilateral innervation. Um, so with unilateral paralysis, uh, sometimes patients will have some residual adduction of the uh, paralytic cord because they are getting some interarytenoid activation from the contralateral healthy recurrent laryngeal nerve, but we don't see this in bilateral uh, paralysis. The, uh, if you recall, the cricothyroid muscle is uh, innervated by the external branch of the superior laryngeal nerve, uh, which it, it branches off of the vagus nerve higher up in the neck than the recurrent and takes a direct route into the larynx through the lateral thyrohyoid membrane. Um, and this branches off the vagus after the nodose ganglion. Uh, for sensory innervation, most of the sensation of the larynx is provided by the superior laryngeal nerve, uh, but there is some mixed sensation at the glottis between the superior laryngeal nerve and the recurrent laryngeal nerve. And the recurrent laryngeal nerve also provides sensation to the subglottic area and, and possibly also to some of the ipsilateral piriform. Uh, another fascinating phenomenon we'll sometimes see is that the tip of the epiglottis receives innervation from glossopharyngeal, so patients may be asensate within their larynx, but still have some sensation within the epiglottis. The source of all motor fibers uh, for the vagus nerve, it comes from the nucleus ambiguous in the, in the medulla um, within the medullary reticular formation. Um, and this is part of the vertebrobasilar system as far as the, um, the blood flow to the area. So patients that uh, develop uh, a stroke of the posterior circulation of the central nervous system, um, such as the pica or, or branches of the vertebral artery, um, can present uh, with either a unilateral or a bilateral vocal fold paralysis. Uh, the other important consideration is that, um, you know, the vocal cords are very important in airway protection with swallowing, uh, but they're not the only gatekeeper to the airway with swallowing. So epiglottic inversion is also very important in protecting the airway with swallowing. And epi epiglottic inversion is primarily um, provided by contraction of the tongue base and use of the um, strap muscles, which help with laryngeal elevation. Um, and so uh, those muscles are really important in, in how well these patients may or may not do clinically um, after their injury, but they're also important when we think about laryngeal reinnervation procedures. Within the um, central neck muscles, there are the strap muscles, the thyrohyoid muscle, and the omohyoid muscle, the sternohyoid muscle, and the sternothyroid muscle. And those are all innervated by the ansa cervicalis um, from cervical rootlet C1 through C3. And the ANSA is a, a common source for us for innervation input into the larynx in the setting of, of laryngeal reinnervation. Uh, the primary elevators of the larynx are uh, the, the suprahyoid muscles. So the geniohyoid muscle, the posterior belly of the digastric, the anterior belly of the digastric, the mylohyoid and the stylohyoid. And those are all innervated either by a cranial nerve V3, 7, or uh, or genohyoid is, is innervated by a cervical rootlet one. And we often hear about synkinesis playing a major role in the progression of vocal cord paralysis. Can we parse that mechanism out a little more? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so Dr. Sunderland uh, published his classification on nerve injury uh, decades ago, and it's, it's absolutely um, foundational in understanding not just the nature of neurogenic injury, but also the nature of recovery. Um, not just for vocal fold paralysis, but for other things that we see in the head and neck region, such as facial nerve paralysis. Um, so within the Sunderland classification, uh, there are one through five degrees of injury. A first degree injury affects only the myelin sheath. So the, the inner structure of the nerve is preserved. We call this neuropra neuropraxia, and this produces a conduction block only, but the nerve will recover completely normal function. A second degree injury, um, it results in injury of the myelin sheath and some of the exon. Uh, the, a third degree injury also involves endoneurial injury. A fourth degree injury involves perineurium injury. And then a fifth is a complete transection. And the important thing to um, understand is that with a second degree injury or higher, so any degree of exonal injury, uh, there is uh, Wallerian degeneration of the nerve where the nerve endings uh, will atrophy all the way back to the, the cell body. And then there is a gradual 
reinnervation of the nerve. And that process takes a very long time. We think the recurrent laryngeal nerve regenerates at about a millimeter a day. If you recall, the nerve starts in the brain and then descends through the neck and then loops around the major blood vessels within the chest before ascending back up into the larynx along the tracheoesophageal groove. And so when we are assessing the degree of residual laryngeal function and anticipating any potential recovery of laryngeal function, um, Wallerian degeneration and reinnervation is very important. As you'll recall, the intrinsic muscles of the larynx are prim primarily adducting muscles. Only the PCA, the posterior cricorytenoid, provides abduction. And so if you imagine a, trans a, a, a slice through the recurrent laryngeal nerve, if you look at the individual axonal distribution within the nerve, the, the majority of those fibers within the nerve are going to be adductor or closing fibers. So when there is disorganized reinnervation in the setting of Wallerian degeneration, the natural history is for the vocal fold to gradually adduct over time. And so that's why many times when we see patients with bilateral vocal fold paralysis, they are not presenting with airway obstruction acutely but they are presenting with airway obstruction weeks or months or sometimes even years later. When we think about the, the way that reinnervation of the, of the larynx occurs, um, Dr. Crumley published a classification of the degrees of synkinesis. Um, and so within bilateral paralysis, there are three different types. Type one is where there is an immobile vocal fold, um, where there may be good voice and airway, um, type two is where there's spasmodic function. So there is disorganized motion and there is, um, you know, um, unpredictability in laryngeal motion. And that oftentimes will produce a poor voice and airway. And then there's type three, which is, uh, the most common type we see, which is where there's hyper adduction of the true vocal folds. And that's what results in airway obstruction and, um, and strider. Well, thanks for walking us through the pathophysiology on that. I think that's really helpful for us to understand why patients present the way they do. Now that we've reviewed that pathophysiology, what on our differential uh, do we include for a patient presenting with a bilateral vocal cord paralysis or paresis? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this this is an area of nuance that that takes a little bit of experience seeing different types of patients with bilateral vocal fold motion impairment to appreciate some of the subtleties. So um, when we when we think about vocal fold motion impairment in general, patients fall into one of two buckets, and one bucket is a neurogenic injury. So there is nothing structurally wrong with the larynx, but there is abnormal aberrant or absent innervation to the intrinsic muscles of the larynx. The second bucket is immobility of the vocal fold because of mechanical issues. And that could be from scarring, that could be from cricorytenoid joint fixation, that could be from a retinoid dislocation, which is a, a less common cause of unilateral or bilateral motion impairment. The most common thing we see is laryngeal stenosis, posterior glottic stenosis specifically. Um, if you recall, uh, in the intubated state, when patients are laying supine, the tongue base acts like a fulcrum that displaces the endotracheal tube into the posterior commissure of the larynx. And so that can be a source of mucosal trauma to the larynx. And then uh, in, the, in the presence of demucosalization, inflammation, or granulation tissue, there can be scar that develops in the posterior larynx that creates bilateral motion impairment. And that may be simple scar that tethers the vocal cords together, uh, or that may be scar that extends into the cricorytenoid joints and causes fixation of the joints as well. And so whenever I see a patient who is referred to me for bilateral vocal fold paralysis after intubation, posterior glottic stenosis is also very high in my differential. And, and oftentimes you can, you can, figure that out a little bit better by looking very closely in the posterior commissure of the larynx on examine the office. There are other etiologies that can produce mechanical fixation of the, of the vocal folds. Uh, most common is radiation uh, to the head and neck, most commonly for head and neck mal malignancy, though I have seen delayed cricorytenoid joint fixation from radiation in, in adults who have gotten radiation for treatment of acne when they were a child, for example. 
Uh, we can see laryngeal stenosis from certain infections, syphilis and tuberculosis being the most common. Um, and then we can see cricoretinoid joint fixation as a consequence of rheumatologic disease. That is most classically described with rheumatoid arthritis, but we also see it with um, relapsing polychondritis. I've even had a patient uh, who developed it with psoriatic arthritis. When we think about the neurogenic bucket, um, the most common cause by and far is surgeons. Um, and that can be surgery uh, around the recurrent laryngeal nerves at any point along the course of the recurrent laryngeal nerves. So that can be posterior fossa surgery, neurosurgery, that can be thyroidectomy, parathyroidectomy, tracheal or esophageal surgery, or uh, intrathoracic surgery, whether that's cardiac, valvular, or thoracic surgery. Certainly malignancy at any point along the course of the recurrent laryngeal nerves can cause a bilateral vocal fold paralysis. So advanced malignancies in the chest, for example, or advanced malignancies in the skull base. We do see bilateral vocal fold paresis and paralysis as a consequence of some de novo neurologic diseases. Uh, the most common one is, is ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, but we do see it as a consequence of Guillain-Barre, which is an acute immune-mediated demyelinating condition. Multiple sclerosis is one possibility. You know, MS the, can affect any point of the brain. And so if they get an MS plaque in the wrong spot of the brain, they can develop a bilateral vocal fold paralysis. As we mentioned during the neuroanatomy portion, you know, the, the motor innervation of the larynx comes from the medulla. And so posterior circulatory strokes can, can cause a bilateral vocal fold paralysis. Uh, we see it with multiple system atrophy and or Parkinson's disease. Um, and there's some debate about whether if you have a bilateral process with Parkinson's, whether that patient technically qualifies as having MSA. And then finally, we will sometimes see it with Chiari malformation where cerebellar descent, descent through the foramen magnum um, can cause compression of the vagus nerve on both sides. From an infectious perspective, you know, I mentioned Guillain-Barre, which we think is a peri-infectious phenomenon but other infections that can cause neuropathy. Lyme disease is a very common uh, cause of that. Polio, this is something that we saw uh, much more uh, in the 50s when polio was a big issue, but we also can see it as a post-polio phenomenon for patients with a history of polio when they were younger. And then we can see it as a consequence of other atypical central nervous system infections, such as uh, neuro-TB, neurosyphilis, et cetera. And then uh, finally, there's uh, some suggestion that um, high levels of, of heavy metals such as lead arsenic, uh, quinine, or streptomycin can cause a bilateral vocal paralysis. Uh, we will sometimes see it in patients that have, have undergone cyto cytotoxic chemotherapy, where they've developed significant neuropathies as a consequence of their chemotherapy, for example. Great. Well, thank you. That's a really kind of comprehensive um, differential. Um, and while we've already covered a lot of the pediatric vocal fold paralysis etiologies in its own podcast, for completeness sake, could we just briefly review the causes of bilateral vocal cord paralysis in the pediatric population? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's a bit different in children. You know, um, as I mentioned, in, in adults, we most often see this as an iatrogenic issue, but we don't have many kids who are getting you know, aortic valve replacements or, or total thyroidectomies or, or those sorts of things. You know, in, in children, the most common etiology is idiopathic bilateral paralysis. Um, and that has a very favorable chance of spontaneous recovery. Up to 50% of children will recover motion on both sides in that setting. Um, Chiari malformation is a much more common etiology in, in, in children, and as well as other kind of pediatric disorders of the central nervous system. So hydrocephalus, myelomeningocele, uh, those sorts of things. Those are typically detected in, in children when they're younger before they grow up to be adults. The other thing that is unique to children to keep in mind is Mobius syndrome, which is a congenital paralysis of the vagus nerve. Uh, that most often is unilateral, but it can occur bilateral. And then finally, uh, keeping in mind birth trauma, uh, either from central nervous system issues like subdural hematoma, or even just from traction injury on the shoulders and the neck when, when retrieving the infant from the birth canal can cause a unilateral or a bilateral uh, recurrent laryngeal nerve paresis or paralysis. 
On history, what are some things you may be paying particular attention to with these patients? Uh, that's a great question. So first is getting a sense of their symptoms and their degree of functional impairment from their symptoms. And, and that looks different depending on the setting. It's one thing if you're evaluating a patient in the recovery unit and they just woke up from their mediastinal node dissection or their total thyroidectomy and they're an extremis and they're retracting. Uh, but most often when you're seeing these patients in the clinic, they have much milder symptoms of airway obstruction, or they may not be having any airway obstruction at all. They may be having more issues with dysphonia and dysphagia. So getting a sense of what are their limitations around their voice, what are their limitations around their breathing and how their breathing act, um, impacts their activity level and the things that they need to do or want to do and how that impacts their quality of life, getting a sense of what their goals are with rehabilitation, um, and then getting a sense of how much dysphagia they have. Most often, bilateral vocal paralysis causes liquid more so than solid dysphagia, um, but also getting a sense of whether they've had a pattern of pneumonias or, or anything like that that would um, create additional urgency around treatment. If you're seeing a patient and they're presenting to you with a bilateral vocal fold paralysis of, of unexplained etiology, then it's important to probe about some of these other things that might help drive your differential diagnosis. So certainly malignancy, uh, uh, either skull base, head and neck, or in the, in the chest can be a, a cause. So understanding their risk factors, their smoking and drinking history, their history of radiation, whether they've ever had prior head and neck surgery, thyroid surgery, cardiothoracic surgery, carotid surgery, spine surgery with an anterior approach, asking about their rheumatologic history, whether they have a history of rheumatoid arthritis or a familial history of it, and then other neurological symptoms too. So besides the symptoms related to their larynx, how, are they also experiencing other neurological symptoms, falls at home, changes in gait, weakness in their arms and legs, uh, whether they've started to exhibit a new tremor, whether they've also begun to exhibit dysarthria or um, hypernasality of speech, things that would suggest palatal weakness. Um, from an infection standpoint, you know, understanding whether they've had recent travel to areas that are endemic for tuberculosis, what their vaccination status is for, for uh, different infection, infectious organisms, particularly now when we're seeing a resurgence of polio. Um, and, and not everyone in the population is completely vaccinated or protected against polio. And then certainly sexual history when, when determining, are they someone who is at risk of tertiary syphilis, for example? And then, you know, as mentioned, less commonly, sometimes heavy metal exposure. So if they have a history of machinery or working in a factory where they're around a lot of heavy metals, that's important when, when you're evaluating the patient with an unexplained bilateral vocal fold paralysis. And in terms of exam, we're obviously looking for bilateral cord movement or lack thereof. Uh, is there anything else you're paying particular attention to? Yeah, you know, um, you, can, you can understand a lot uh, before you ever even put a scope in these patients. You know, um, part of that's in the interview. When you're talking with them, you get a sense of what their voice quality is like. Uh, do they have a voice that's breathy in quality? Do they have a voice that's strong, but they're having strider? How long can they talk on a single breath of air? Do they have to stop to take uh, frequent breaths? How comfortable do they look sitting in the exam chair? Do they look short of breath? Is their respiratory rate elevated? Are they developing retractions? Those sorts of things. Uh, the other things that we're, we're looking at are paying really close attention to anything else that may help drive your differential diagnosis, particularly if this is someone who doesn't have a clear explanation for the problem. So a very careful head and neck exam per, with paying particular attention to the neurologic exam and a very mindful cranial nerve exam is really important in these patients. Uh, you can oftentimes get a sense of what degree of airway obstruction they might have or what degree of vocal cord motion they might have by mirror laryngoscopy. But these patients really are best asset, assessed by flexible laryngoscopy or ideally by laryngeal video stroboscopy which gives you the most information about what degree of residual laryngeal motion and function they may have. The other things you can look for are the positioning of the arytenoids. So in patients with a bilateral vocal fold paralysis, most often the arytenoids sit very upright in a normal position. 
If you see arytenoids that are very contracted or are scissored on each other, then you might suggest something more like posterior glottic stenosis rather than a neurogenic injury. Uh, and then you get a sense also of what degree of vocal cord closure do they have? Do they have a large gap between their vocal folds when they attempt to adduct them? Um, or do they have no problems with closure, but they have very minimal or no abduction or opening? And in the most significant state, these patients may be breathing through an airway that is only a millimeter or two in width and long and slit light just along the membranous vocal folds. And are there any other imaging uh, or studies that you'd want to obtain on these patients? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's um, nothing de novo that I order for everyone. Um, you know, it, largely it depends on that information you've gathered over the course of your interview with the patient and, and on a very mindful exam of the patient. So for example, if I have a patient who they had their thyroid out and then all these issues started after they had their thyroid out, I'm not going to get any imaging looking for a malignancy or for a Chiari malformation or those sorts of things. They have a very clear explanation for why they have a bilateral vocal fold paralysis. Um, that being said, for the patient that has an unexplained vocal fold paralysis, I think you are obligated to image comprehensively the entire length of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. And most often that is a CAT scan from the skull base all the way down to the aortic pulmonary window. And we do that routinely for unilateral or bilateral vocal fold paralysis. Um, I will oftentimes add on an MRI to look for a Chiari malformation um, if there's a concern and it's an unexplained problem. There is some testing you can do um, if you're concerned about the degree of swallowing dysfunction the patient is having. Certainly a modified barium swallow study or also called a fluoroscopic swallow study uh, will give you good information not just on whether they're aspirating or not, but what are the safe strategies that they might utilize to reduce aspiration? Are they someone who should be thickening their liquids in order to reduce aspiration? Those sorts of things. Um, sometimes we'll order labs, um, you know, particularly, you know, I, I practice in Michigan, which is an area where Lyme disease is endemic. And if the patient has a history of, of you know, a a tick bite where there's a suspicion for Lyme, we might send Lyme titers. We might send an RPR if there's a concern for syphilis, a more heavy metal panel if there are occupational exposures where we think it might be uh, because of heavy metal toxicity. But those are infrequent things and largely dictated by the individual patient and their risk factors. The final thing that is um, sometimes helpful is, is diagnostic laryngeal EMG. And that's particularly helpful for the patient who presents with bilateral motion impairment of unexplained etiology. And we're really trying to understand, is that a neurogenic problem or is that a mechanical problem? The alternative to diagnostic EMG would be to do an operative laryngoscopy and to do manual palpation of the cricorytenoid joints to assess their passive mobility. But many times laryngeal EMG is advantageous because it doesn't require a trip to the operating room. It doesn't require anesthesia exposure. It's something that we can do in the office. The EMG also will sometimes give us some additional information about the degree of residual laryngeal function. So are we seeing any sort of motor unit potential recruitment with, with phonation, for example? Um, are we seeing defibrillation potentials or other things that are signs of active denervation of the larynx? You know, those sorts of things that might give us a bit more information about the prognosis for recovery of function. All right. So now that we've covered the presentation, pathophysiology, and diagnosis of um, bilateral cord paralysis, let's move on to treatment. We'll break it down into kind of early and then late management for these patients. So starting with the early treatment, how do we typically manage them when we first meet the patient? That, that's a great question. And I think it depends on the context of things. And so I'd like to split this into two categories. I'll call it the acute treatment and the early treatment. So um, I'll use a, a representative example. Um, for example, a patient I saw a few weeks ago, um, they had an advanced papillary thyroid cancer for which they underwent a total thyroidectomy and bilateral central neck dissection. Um, they extubated successfully in the operating room, uh, but by the time they made it to the recovery unit, they were developing progressively increasing strider. They were starting to look to kipnic. They were starting to retract. So for the patient that has an acute bilateral vocal fold paralysis, and it's related to uh, an acute operation, 
Um, the, the question is what you can do for, to help stabilize that patient. So there are adjuvant things that you can use. You can administer high-dose steroids. You can give the patient racemic epinephrine. You can give them Heliox, which is a blended um, gas of helium and oxygen that helps with oxygenation in the setting of airway obstruction. And sometimes if you can get them through the acute laryngeal edema from their intubation, their, their breathing will settle out in a point where they'll do okay for a while. If they are not responding to medical treatments, then you need to re-secure their airway. Uh, but as I said a little bit ago, you know, if the airway obstruction is significant, you have to reintubate. You also have to ask yourself, what else are you going to do next? And oftentimes that, that involves tracheostomy. When we're seeing patients in the early phase, which I would define early as not in the immediate hours or days after surgery, but within the first nine months to a year after onset of symptoms, you know, the, the potential for recovery of laryngeal function is, is indeterminate, but there is some potential for recovery. And so in that situation, oftentimes we will avoid trying to do anything that is permanently altering or disruptive to the larynx. Uh, in, but there are a few things that we can do to help with, with alleviating the, the airway obstruction these patients will, uh, will experience. The most simple is a tracheostomy. You know, with a tracheostomy, you give them the best breathing possible. You do not do anything that disrupts voice quality, but that involves living with a tracheostomy and the realities of having a tracheostomy. And, and many patients are resistant to that for understandable reasons. Uh, the two other things that we'll use in the early phase, uh, one is laryngeal Botox injections, specifically injecting Botox into the adductor muscles most often the thyroarytenoid or the lateral cricorytenoid muscles, allows uh, for the airway to open. It does create a breathy dysphonia as a consequence of that, but is many times very successful alleviating the shortness of breath and airway obstruction. An important uh, thing to think about with Botox is that it does take a few days for the Botox to take its full effect. And there's debate about whether that's anywhere from three to seven days. So Botox is not best utilized in a patient who has unstable breathing or signs of, of tenuous airway obstruction, but rather someone who has you know, milder forms, either dyspnea on exertion or, or other limitations in their breathing, but that they're rel relatively stable at rest or if they're not exerting themselves too much. Botox is a temporary treatment. It generally lasts about three to five months. Most often we'll use botulinum type, type A and we'll use doses anywhere from one to two units. Sometimes we'll inject one side, sometimes we'll inject both. And that's where understanding the patient's values around breathing and voice are important. But Botox is a good bridge for these patients uh, as far as alleviating their symptoms while we wait to see what degree of neurogenic recovery uh, the larynx um, experiences. Uh, the final procedure is endoscopic suture lateralization. Uh, with that, we expose the larynx endoscopically, and then you can pass a, a large suture, typically a proline suture, uh, through the neck into the, the lumen of the larynx. And then you pass that and, and pull that immediately anterior to the vocal process. And that allows you to pull one of the vocal cords into the abducted position. Uh, sometimes we'll use uh, two sutures to try to get a bit more room uh, with abduction. Uh, you then can tie that over a little button or a silastic keel on the thyroid ala. Um, and the advantage of a suture lateralization is that it's reversible. So if the patient recovers motion, you can go in, um, typically just in the office under, under local anesthesia, you can cut the suture, remove the button, and reverse the suture lateralization. That being said, you know, oftentimes there is some permanent and notching or scarring of the vocal cord in the position of the suture. And what about treatment later in the course? Um, and as a secondary question, when do we typically start considering these interventions? Uh, great question. I think um, that's an individual dis decision based off of you know, discussions with the patient. In general, once we get past nine months to 12 months, the amount of function that we're seeing we anticipate is going to be what we see long term. But bilateral vocal fold paresis and paralysis, as I said, is a very heterogeneous condition. I have a patient where we followed her bilateral paralysis for a year and a half. And, it, and when she was discharged, she had a good balance of breathing and voice. And then she presented two years later with increasing strider 
and she had had additional synkinesis and worsening airway obstruction. So there's not a magic time, but in general, I would avoid doing anything permanently altering or destructive to the larynx for at least nine months. The other thing is um, the degree of symptoms that the patient is experiencing and how much that's impacting their functional status or their quality of life. So a patient who has more mild exertional dyspnea, we might wait longer. Or I even have patients who we've managed their bilateral paralysis long-term with Botox because they've been reticent against doing anything permanent and they find that they do very well with, with Botox. So there's not a magic number. It, it, it really is a, a shared decision between you and the patient. That being said, once we get past a year, the likelihood of there being a dramatic or notable increase in vocal fold motion is, is incredibly low. Um, if you look at, at most studies, that, that's probably less than 10% once you're past 12 months. So when we have bilateral motion impairment that is permanent, then we start talking about what are some other things that we could do that are permanent that might provide the patient with a permanent benefit. And a lot of that depends on their degree of laryngeal function. So for patients that recover some degree of partial motion, as we mentioned, they may not need any additional operations. They may have some degree of dyspnea, and some degree of dysphonia, but they, they may be at a reasonable balance. But for the patients that have persistent immobility in particular, who never really recover any significant motion of their vocal cords, they typically will need something else done. You know, the, the most simple uh, solution, same, is still tracheostomy. And that's oftentimes the, the, the solution that provides the best breathing and the best voice quality, uh, but does require living with a tracheostomy for the rest of your life. I do have patients who, who have lived with a tracheostomy for years or decades uh, that was placed after their bilateral paralysis because they value their voice and their voice quality and they don't want to do anything to compromise that. But for patients that want to live tracheostomy free, in general, then we get into a category of things that we call glottic expansion procedures. And so that's robbing Peter to pay Paul. It's taking out a little bit of the normal tissue of the larynx in order to create more room for breathing but understanding that anything that we create for breathing is taking away from voice. Um, there are several different procedures that have been developed for this. Uh, one, the most simple is something called the transverse chordotomy. That's where we make a, a linear incision, typically with a laser through the vocal cord, including the vocal ligament, just anterior to the vocal process that disarticulates the membranous vocal fold from the arytenoid and then typically will create kind of a keyhole architecture or structure to the glottic opening. Um, alternatively, you can perform only a partial retinoidectomy or a total retinoidectomy. When we do a partial retinoidectomy, most often we do what we call a medial retinoidectomy, which is removing part of the medial body of the retinoid, but leaving the, the membranous vocal fold attached to the vocal process or sometimes we'll combine a transverse chordotomy with a partial retinoidectomy to try to get patients more room to breathe. And a lot of that depends on trying to strike that balance and what are the things that patients value. Do they value their voice more where they're really looking for just a little bit of relief in their breathing, but they don't want to do anything that is going to dramatically alter their voice? Or are they someone who they're a, a retired Olympic cyclist and their goal is to be able to go for a 60 minute bike ride and not have to stop shortly for, or stop frequently for shortness of breath. And they don't really care as much what their voice quality sounds like if, but they just want to get back to cycling. So that's where that shared decision-making comes in. The other thing I tell patients is that once we take out tissue, we can't put it back. So I'd rather take them for a second revision procedure to take a little bit more than to leave their voice too disabled with an initial operation. So sometimes these patients do require more than one procedure. Um, there, there have been techniques that have been prescribed for laryngeal reinnervation. The most common is a neuromuscular pedicle technique where there's a nerve transfer to the recurrent laryngeal nerve, typically from the phrenic, where you do a phrenic to RLN reanastomosis, and you can also do a cable graft to the contralateral side or you can take a segment of omohyoid with ANSA innervation and place that into the PCA. As we mentioned, there's laryngeal motion 
vertical laryngeal motion with respiration. And so we can harness some of that ANSA cervicalis activation to aid in respiration. These are pretty limited surgeries that are done infrequently around the country. Another thing that is experimental but, but is a promising thought is posterior cricorytenoid pacing. So the, this is analogous to the Inspire implant that many of us are familiar with for OSA now, but you can place a respiratory monitor and then you can place a, a pacing unit where respiration is paced to the posterior cricorytenoid muscle. So when the patient goes to breathe in, the posterior cricorytenoid muscle is, is activated. That is still being investigated in an experimental sense, but has some promise uh, for the future. And then finally, like I, I mentioned, many, many patients will just simply continue with Botox. Uh, they like the customization they can achieve with Botox, um, and, and they are reticent to doing anything permanent that's going to permanently alter their voice quality. Most of our discussion so far has focused on bilaterally adducted cords. How often do you see patients with bilaterally abducted cords? Uh, that's a great question, much less commonly. And um, I, I think that gets at most often when we're seeing bilateral vocal fold paralysis, we're seeing patients who have had a neurogenic issue where they have residual innervation to the larynx whether that's disorganized uh, innervation or not. And so, as we, as we said, in disorganized reinnervation, there is gradual adduction of the vocal folds over time. That being said, we do see patients who are in the bilateral open position. Um, most often we see that acutely after an injury um, where the, the patient will have breathy dysphonia, they might have aspiration, but they don't have any breathing sy symptoms. This is a much less common manifestation, and generally, the patient will evolve from the abducted open larynx to the adducted obstructed larynx gradually over time. Um, in this situation, you know, the goals are not treating breathing, uh, but rather are trying to aid in avoiding aspiration and trying to rehabilitate voice. But this is a really, really challenging problem because we don't have any way of aiding or restoring vocal fold mobility. So the same way synkinesis improves voice but causes worsening breathing, anything we might do to rehabilitate a bilateral abducted vocal cord paralysis has risk of generating airway obstruction. So acutely sometimes we'll do unilateral or very careful bilateral injection augmentation with a temporary filler I like to use hyaluronic acid because we have an antidote, we have hyaluronidase. So if we do over-inject, we have a way of reversing that for the patient. If it's a permanent abducted paralysis, they're permanently open. That's a very, very challenging problem to treat. Uh, people have looked at doing bilateral or unilateral medialization thyroplasty in that situation. The other thing that's important with these patients is while there's oftentimes a focus on the voice, is not to neglect the swallowing. So these patients will oftentimes have a lot of difficulty with protecting their airway. Sometimes they even require a feeding tube and, and are not safe to eat or drink anything by mouth. Or sometimes they can get by with modifications, particularly with thickening their liquids. And what kind of breathing and voice outcomes are you expecting postoperatively, getting back to our typical kind of adducted um, vocal cord patient? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, um, you know, in, in general, patients with a bilateral vocal fold paralysis tend to do a bit better than patients who have laryngeal stenosis, posterior glottic stenosis, or, or joint fixation, or both. And, and I think the reason for that is that the geometry of things is much more normal, and there's not an underlying process that's going to lead to recurrence of the condition. So the published rates of, of being able to decannulate a tracheostomy um, after glottic expansion procedures, such as chordotomy or partial retinoidectomy, is published around 60% or so, and, and anecdotally in my practice is, is oftentimes much higher. Similarly, with laryngeal reinnervation, uh, decannulation rates are published as high as 75%. You know, I, I think many of these patients, they, they, are, they present to us without a tracheostomy, and we're not necessarily doing anything to decannulate them, but we're more just trying to find that better, 
balance between breathing and voice. And so that's where things like patient reported outcomes are really helpful for us engaging on whether what we do is successful or not. And you know, what I tell, tell patients in, in this situation is we want to leave you with a voice that's functional and we want to leave you with breathing that allows you to do most of the things, if not all the things that you want to do. And so we're never going to be able to make either of them normal again, but we want to make them better at least so much so that this problem is not such a significant impact on your quality of life and your functional status. And roughly kind of what, if the patient is uh, tracheostomy dependent, what rate of decannulation do you typically see with those patients? Oftentimes as high as, you know, 75, 80% or even a little bit higher. Um, There are a lot of things that go into that. You know, when we do glottic expansion procedures, um, as I mentioned, we, we never will give the patient a normal breathing. And, and on the same vein, we never give them breathing that's as good as breathing through a tracheostomy. So I, I think, you know, there's a lot that colors what patients end up proceeding to decannulation or not. Part of that is how much the patient hates their tracheostomy or dislikes their tracheostomy. Some patients are incredibly motivated to live tracheostomy free, and they may accept a greater degree of limitations to their life and the the activities they can do in order to live tracheostomy free. Other patients find that as soon as we start capping their tracheostomy, it's just never as good as the tracheostomy and and they become familiar enough with the tracheostomy, it becomes enough of kind of their daily routine and their daily care that they elect to live with their tracheostomy. And there are other things that color that too. You know, obviously patients that have intrinsic lung problems, if they have congestive heart failure, if they have pulmonary hypertension, if they have obesity, particularly morbid obesity, those things are going to affect how well a patient can live compensated for upper airway obstruction. So a patient who is young without any comorbidities oftentimes can live fairly comfortably with with a fairly significant degree of laryngeal airway obstruction versus a patient who has significant asthma or has uncompensated congestive heart failure or their BMI is 60, where we may never be able to give them quite as much as they need compared to what they can get with a tracheostomy. And what kind of complications do you counsel patients about or or monitor for in the subsequent months and years after surgery? That's a, a very excellent question. So whenever we're doing surgery on an obstructed airway um, where we're trying to really thread that needle. We're trying to make things better, but we're not trying to make things too open and too breathy. There always is acute edema and swelling after surgery, and the patient will sometimes have to get through that. So sometimes these patients will require corticosteroids as a taper after their operation. And then most importantly, particularly when we're doing a retinoid work where we're exposing cartilage, there's a potential for granulation and granuloma formation. And granulomas can blossom and then begin to obstruct the airway. So doing these operations, particularly doing these operations on a patient when they don't have a tracheostomy, does does invite some degree of chaos. Some of these patients are going to come back fairly acutely to the office or even the emergency department in the weeks following surgery. And there's, there's you know, some literature to suggest that the revision rate of having to go back to the operating room to either um, treat granulation or recurrent scar formation can be as high as 30%. Um, the other thing is when we, when we remove normal tissue, the body is going to fill in that defect. So what I tell patients when we do a chordotomy and or a partial retinoidectomy is what I'm trying to do is overshoot the mark a little bit because as that area heals, it's going to fill in a bit with scar. And so the voice is typically breathier in the first few weeks after surgery than it's going to be long-term for them. And so sometimes patients will say, you know, breathing was great for three or four weeks after surgery, but within a month, uh, you know, I felt like I was short of breath again. And that, that tells us that we need to go back and take a bit more tissue. Like I said, you know, my general principle is Once you take something out, you can't put it back in. I'd rather go back for a second operation and make things a little bit more open 
then leave patient with, with a very significantly disabled voice from an initial operation. Um, but these patients do require monitoring fairly closely after surgery. I'll typically see them within, you know, seven to 14 days after their operation in the office to look at early healing and make sure they're not starting to blossom granulation tissue. And then I'll see them every few weeks until laryngeal healing is complete. We will sometimes use some adjuvants to try to prevent or treat granulation if it forms. Those might think, be things like high-dose proton pump inhibitors or inhaled corticosteroids or, or those sorts of things as well. And then I tell patients if they do have a trach that we're not going to cap their trach until their larynx is fully healed and quiet. Because if we, if we cap them too soon and then they have a bit more scarring and fibrosis and things fill in, we may decannulate them too soon and then all of a sudden they're having too much dyspnea again. So you have spoken to this a little bit already in terms of acute post-op course, but how often do you typically follow these patients post-operatively and for how long? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, and I'll, I'll also expand that to how long do I follow patients in general, even if we don't end up operating on the problem? So for, for a surgical patient, as I mentioned, I see them closely to surgery and then every few weeks until the larynx is healed. And then in general, I, I follow them every few months for a year. Um, once we get to a year out, I, I offer annual follow-up. Um, some of my patients like to come in once a year just to kind of assess things and make sure that everything looks okay. Um, some of my patients travel from quite a ways and, and, and opt to just follow up as needed. For the patient with a bilateral paralysis, particularly if it's early on after their injury, those patients need to be followed. Like I said, the this process of synkinesis and the, the gradual development of airway obstruction can occur over the course of months or sometimes years. So even if we're not doing anything in the early phase, or even if they're at a fairly good balance, but they're fairly close to their injury, we will continue to follow these patients for a, a longer period of time because there is some risk that they can develop issues over time. The other thing that it's important for these patients to understand is that their airway is never gonna be normal again. If they get a viral upper respiratory illness or other sort of routine infection and they get just a little bit of edema in their larynx, that can oftentimes push these patients to being quite dyspneic and stridulous. And so I tell my patients to have a low threshold to call me if they have a URI and they're, and they're having some increased dyspnea and we'll put them empirically on steroids. And then similarly, it's important for them to understand that if they ever needed to be intubated in the future, even for a routine elective surgery, that uh, their anesthesiologist and their surgeon need to understand their condition because there is some potential they could have worsening airway obstruction and strider after surgery from edema from the intubation. The interesting thing with bilateral vocal cord paralysis is that the actual intubation part managing the airway um, is not that challenging because it's a neurogenic problem. So once you give the patient paralytic, the vocal folds fall into the abducted position. It's very easy to pass an endotracheal tube through the larynx in these patients, but it's more on the back end. It's after surgery, when they wake up and the, and the paralytic has resolved and then their vocal folds begin to abduct again that you have to be mindful of symptoms. So I have patients with bilateral vocal paralysis that I see once a year that I've seen for years. But I, I make sure that all patients, even if they release from follow-up and follow-up as needed, that they understand their condition and understand the implications for their condition, for their life, and for their medical care in the future. Well, that's all the questions I had for you. Um, before we move on to our summary section, did you have anything you wanted to add or emphasize? Yeah, you know, I, this is a, a fascinating problem. Um, and I think some of the, the fascinating aspects of it are the, the heterogeneity of these patients. You know, we see pa these patients on a spectrum from the very high intensity, acute, acutely obstructed airway in the recovery unit or in the emergency department, the ICU, all the way to the patient who um, does not have those degree of limitations, but you know, the, the problem really does have a significant impact on their quality of life. I think the thing I would emphasize is what I've mentioned a few times in my talk. 
it's really, really important to understand your patient, their goals, and the things that they value, particularly around breathing and voice when making a shared decision about treatment. If you neglect to understand that, then you may give the patient a problem that is worse for them than what they had initially. They may have had exertional dyspnea, and then you go do a surgery, and their breathing is much better, but now their voice is terrible. Oh, but they're, they're a pastor, and now all of a sudden they can't get through a sermon for their congregation. Or they work in a call center, and all of a sudden they can't get through a whole workday. So understanding your patient, their life, and what their goals are is absolutely essential in helping to navigate your patient through this problem. And I think the other thing I would emphasize is, under, is, is helping your patient understand the problem, helping them understand that most often this is going to be a permanent problem to some degree for them. We're hopeful they may recover some degree of motion, but this is something that they have to be aware of and mindful of moving forward into the future. And they have to be advocates for themselves because this is a problem that many doctors in other areas of medicine are not familiar with. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for teaching us and joining us today. Oh, and thank you so much for the opportunity. It was wonderful coming for a chat today. To briefly summarize, about 30% of all vocal cord paralysis patients are affected bilaterally, with a vast majority presenting with bilaterally medialized or adducted vocal folds. Patients may present with anywhere from acute, life-threatening airway obstruction to mild dyspnea on exertion, with similarly varying degrees of dysphonia and dysphagia, and severity of symptoms often evolves over time. While iatrogenic injury to the vagus or recurrent laryngeal nerve is the most common etiology, a wide variety of neoplastic, infectious, toxic, autoimmune, and neurologic pathophysiologies may cause bilateral cord paralysis, and any unexplained paralysis should be worked up with imaging of the entire course of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. All patients should be evaluated with, ideally, video stroboscopy to assess degree of vocal fold motion impairment, as well as the status of other laryngeal structures, such as the positioning of the arytenoids or um, laryngeal sensation and secretion pooling. A variety of other diagnostics, such as modified barium swallow studies, laryngeal EMG, or a variety of labs may be used to work up specific suspected etiologies or concomitant uh, symptoms, depending on patient presentation and exam. While immediate post-injury treatment typically consists of securing a safe airway, return of normal function may occur within the first 9 to 12 months after injury, with many patients managed more conservatively with tracheostomy, reversible suture lateralization, or Botox during that time period. Later treatment options to improve the airway can include chordotomy, medial or total arytenoidectomy, or laryngeal reinnervation. However, it is crucial to discuss long-term goals with patients, as these all come with significant impact on vocal quality. Fibrosis or granuloma formation can be seen postoperatively, and in patients desiring decannulation, surgeons should make sure the larynx has fully healed and the airway stabilized before moving toward capping. Now we'll wrap up with a few review questions. As always, I'll pause between asking a question and giving the answer to allow you time to think of an answer or pause the podcast. Starting off, what is the utility of laryngeal EMG in working up vocal cord paralysis? Laryngeal EMG can help confirm sidedness or bilateral nature of vocal cord paralysis and help prognosticate uh, reinnervation outcomes. Additionally, EMG can be helpful distinguishing between neurologic paralysis or paresis and mechanical impairments such as posterior glottic stenosis and cricorytenoid joint fixation, and may help avoid early operative intervention uh, during diagnosis. With what kind of dysphagia do patients with bilateral vocal cord paralysis typically present? Bilateral vocal cord paralysis patients typically present with liquid more than solid dysphagia. These patients should be evaluated with a modified barium swallow study, both to assess severity of dysphagia and airway risk, as well as to dictate therapeutic interventions, such as thickening liquids or even requiring a time NPO. Describe the differences between transverse chordotomy, medial arytenoidectomy, and total arytenoidectomy, and when you might use these procedures. 
A transverse chordotomy involves incising the true vocal fold just anterior to the vocal process, sometimes extending into the false vocal fold, leaving the arytenoid intact. In contrast, a retinoidectomy involves removing the vocal process of the arytenoid, with medial retinoidectomy leaving a lateral strut of vocal process in place, while a total retinoidectomy removes the entire vocal process. All three procedures are undertaken at least 9 to 12 months after symptom onset, once return of normal cord motion is not anticipated. The primary goal is to create more room in the posterior glottic space in a patient who wants to be tracheostomy free and can be performed in conjunction with each other to optimize the patent airway size. A 60 or greater percent uh, rate of decannulation after transverse chordotomy or medial arytenoidectomy has been reported in the literature to date. And as a bit of a bonus question, why do more patients tend to present with vocal cords in the adducted compared to abducted position? Recall that all intrinsic laryngeal muscles, except for the posterior cricorytenoid muscle, or the PCA, are adductors, with a majority of RLN axons thus synapsing with adductor targets. Aberrant neural regeneration therefore results in increased reinnervation of the adductor muscles compared to the abductors. This also explains why patients may have progressive adduction of the vocal cords as laryngeal reinnervation and thus degree of synkinesis progresses. While still in trials, laryngeal pacing of the PCA may help counteract this effect. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.